0: Father, we thank you for the body of Christ, the church. That this isn't a show. This isn't a performance. Uh, this isn't even about a talk. This is about your people gathered. Lord, we thank you for the technology that allows us to gather uh, online as well. And Lord, we pray for our church. We pray that you would preserve the unity of our body. We pray, Father, that you would preserve the relationships in our body. We pray, Father, Lord, for the body of Christ that is represented by Christ the King, Lord, that we would grow in one anothering during this time when that is really difficult because of the pandemic. Father, we pray that you would renew us in our commitment to one another, to en- meet with each other, to encourage one another, or to, to every day remind each other and point each other to the reality that is Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Our hope our bond with each other. Lord, we pray, too, that you would protect the peace and unity and purity of our body. Lord, we pray, Father, for our church, even walking through now what's coming up on a year uh, next month. Lord, we pray, Father, that you'd preserve the unity, uh, the relationships, the reality of this, your church. We pray, Father, too, that you would grow us as people who are being marked by your humility and your love for one another and for or those who are around us. Lord, we pray that you would do so for Jesus' sake, for his glory, and for our joy. We pray these things in his name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to turn uh, in your bulletin or in your Bible to Philippians 2, 1 through 11. We're going to read this aloud together. Christ's example of humility is how my, my Bible gives us this. This is a, a famous song of the early church. So I want to invite you, uh, if you would, join your voices with me in reading this. You ready? Three, two, one. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and with one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, Lord. You are our rock, our fortress, and our redeemer. Amen. We are going through a vision series where we are talking through what the, the vision that our elders have set forth over the next 10 years. We've been looking at this apple tree diagram that you can find in your bulletin or you could find on our website. And like a weird apple tree that you've never seen before, this one has different kinds of fruits on it. Uh, we are on the second of those fruits. We've talked about a church that plants churches. And now we're talking about a church that is about cross-cultural discipleship, becoming cross-cultural disciples. And this sermon really is about how we do that, how we do that. And, and before I jump into that this morning, I just remind you of both the what and the why, what we're doing and why we're doing it. Because when I say cross-cultural discipleship, many people automatically go to multicultural. You picture the college catalog with three or four students of different backgrounds and ethnicities around a table laughing over a meal. And that's the world's picture of what it means to be cross-cultural. It's it's sort of this diversity, which can be sort of more of a photo op or cheap. What we're looking for is something much deeper and something which we believe Scripture points us to. And and it's this. It's not that we would become a multi ethnic church on Sundays. You know, that's not a bad thing, but we're aiming at something much higher. And there are two problems. There would be two problems with us aiming just at being a multi-ethnic church or pursuing diversity. And the first is this, that it can be an arrogant goal, particularly for a majority white congregation to say, you know, we're just going to change some things here, and suddenly we expect people of color are just going to flood this congregation, and that's, that's we'll, we'll check a box. We'll feel like we've done something. And um, too often that's been sort of what's done in our, in our culture. And, and second, the other is that we're not looking to measure just what happens here on Sundays. We believe the church exists as a Monday through Sunday institution, not just a Sunday institution. So what we're looking for more is what is happening in the lives of our people Monday through Saturday. Are we the type of people who are growing and becoming cross-cultural disciples in our relationships, in the way that we interact with others? You know, our goal is a lifelong journey of listening and learning that mutually recognizes and validates and celebrates all people and cultures to glorify God for the sake of pursuing Christian unity, that's what we're aiming at, and that is much deeper. But here's why. And we, we draw all of this tree diagram back to Jesus' vision statement for the church. We started off this series talking about Jesus' vision statement from the church. Class, does anyone know Jesus' vision statement for the church? What's it called? The Great Commission. I'm so glad to have people in front of me today. I love talking to people. So thank you for talking to me. I'm going to be talking to you a lot. So um, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go into all the world and make disciples of all ethne, all nations. See, this, this comes to really fundamentally God's vision for his church, that we would make disciples of all our neighbors, not just the ones who look like us. In the American church, too often, our churches are like attracts like. And so you look at congregations, you're like, gosh, I, I can figure out that you guys are all pretty similar in the things that you're into. And, and one of the things that really marked the early church was this like and unlike coming together in fellowship. That was one of the main apologetics for the reality of the gospel in the Roman Empire. We pray that that would be true in us. So we're, we're hoping to grow as a church in cultural competence, cultural agility, because we want all people to know the joy of Jesus. We want all people gathered around his throne. Um, now, how? That's the million-dollar question. That's what I'm going to aim us at this morning. And I know that when we start talking about culture and about the church, it can make some people nervous. And I just want to head this one off at the pass this morning because I know many of you have been in businesses or companies that have probably done diversity training before. Anybody been through some diversity training? I thought so, right? Uh, you, you've, you've watched the TV show The Office. Uh, one of the early episodes of The Office is a c- very cringeworthy episode about Diversity Day. And, and, you know, I know that you're wondering, some of you may be wondering, is this whole topic of cross-cultural discipleship, is it going to take us off the rails of the gospel? Of Jesus being the main point of our church, are we just going to be led by the culture? That's a good question. And so let me let me explain it this way. I think that sometimes Christians are too binary in the way that we think. Binary thinking is either-or categories. Either-or categories. So when I start speaking about the church and the culture, it's very easy for Christians to think in two categories for that. And let me use boating examples for this. Anybody been tubing during the summer? I grew up in East Tennessee. Lots of rivers. Lots of tubing with my youth group uh, growing up. uh, And and tubing is where you pull the truck inner tube, inflate it out into the river, and you float. There's no motor. There's no paddle. There's nothing on that tube. It is going the direction and speed of the current. That's what tubing is. And for many people, they when when we start talking about the church and culture, they're like, "Oh no, we're just going to start tubing." we're going to be led by the culture. We're just going to drift the way the culture is going. We know that's a danger. And so sometimes Christians say, well, we should do the opposite of that. And let's picture that one not as an inner tube that we're tubing down the river, but the motorboat with the big outboard motor where we're going to go upstream. We're going to go against the current. We're going to go against culture and go that direction. And Christians often think, well, those are my two options. I'm either with the culture or I'm against the culture. And I think though that there's another option. There's another way that Jesus would lead us. And I want you to think about this. This can take some imagination. The old fashioned ferry boat. Now, a ferry boat would look like a big platform. It was nothing more than a raft with a wire going across the river, anchored to either side and anchored to the with a slip-through for the boat, and ropes ropes that are tied to either bank. And the, the, the ferry driver would pull the raft across the river, going one way, and then pull it up across the river, going the other way. And, you know, riding on a ferry boat is both feeling like at some points you're going with culture, and at some points you're going against the culture. Some, some parts of it feel like you're going upstream. Some parts of it feel like you're working downstream. And I think that's a picture for us, though, of what Jesus would have us think about with regard to the church. We're neither for or against. We're going somewhere else. We're going another direction. See, I think it's possible that Jesus has more for his church than simply being with or against, either or. I think he's moving us to another shore, and his word, like those wires attached on either side of the bank, is a solid anchor for us. That's why we keep coming back to this in the midst of this conversation. This is about God's word leading us his leadership for us. So we're going to look this morning at the passage we just read out loud. At this picture of Jesus, following in the footsteps of Jesus. That's my main idea from this morning. Following in the footsteps of Jesus. This is our how we pursue cross-cultural discipleship. So first look at verses 5 through 8. Following the footsteps of Jesus in his humility in his humility. Paul traces this slow downward steps of Jesus in what's highlighted here in verse seven, that word emptying. Jesus emptied himself. Now, a little, to make you feel really smart this morning, I'm going to teach you the Greek word for that. That word is called kenosis. Can you say that with me, class? Kenosis. Oh, see, you, you can already, those of you in high school can already feel good about SAT preparation right now, this morning. Um, Kenosis is Jesus emptying himself. Now, but we have to be careful about what we mean by that. It can't mean that Jesus stopped being divine. He didn't empty himself of his divinity. He didn't empty himself even of all of his attributes as God. He didn't become a lesser God. You could see this in the the, um, New Testament Gospels. Jesus calms the storm. He still has some measure of divine power. Uh, We see him in this dinner party at a Pharisee's house named Simon, where Jesus knows what Simon is thinking. So he's not emptying himself of all of his his attributes. What is he emptying himself of? Here's how I'd like to, to point it out. He made himself nothing. The New Living Translation says this, he gave up all his divine privileges. The kenosis was self-renunciation. He set aside the glory of heaven with his Father, and he voluntarily refrained from using his divinity to make his life easier. And as part of this, he operates within the limitations of humanity. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. He says, you know, the descent of Jesus is this unbelievable event that we believe in. That Jesus, the, the Christian assertion, is what is beyond all Time and space. What is uncreated, God himself, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own uni- universe, and became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's womb. And he says it this way, if you want to get an idea of what that would be like, you want to get the hang of it, think of how it would be for you to become a slug or a crab. I love that illustration, a slug or a crab, that, that kind of limitation. And even that just scratches the surface of Jesus in his kenosis, in him emptying himself for our sake. You know, think about this. He enters into a body where he has to be taught, it has to be taught to feed itself. He enters into a body where he can't move, he has to be taught to walk, to speak the uncreated Lord of glory enters into that kind of smallness, that kind of helplessness. And of course, this, you, you see this kind of climax, the, 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 the high point of this humiliation in Jesus' life. Uh, the night before he's, he goes to the cross, he takes off his outer robe, and he comes and he washes the feet of his disciples. Unthinkable unthinkable for a rabbi to do in the first century. Mind-boggling for the Lord of the universe. Just unbelievable that Jesus would do this. And Paul says, this, this picture, this kenosis is a model for us of what it looks like to be his people, what it looks like to follow in his footsteps. This is why he says things like this. Let this same mind be among you that's yours in Christ Jesus. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And, and Paul here is not a, he's not a hypocritical preacher. If you turn over just another page, just another page in your Bible, you'd see that Paul describes himself this same way. He says, you know, this is who I was. Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, the tribe of Benjamin, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's like, I got Merit badges on my Cub Scout uniform like nobody else got. Right? He's, got, he's like, got all, I got all the, the bling, and yet this is what he says. Whatever I gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. When I was in college, we had this uh, alumni come back to speak to our Christian group on campus. And his name, I still remember his name. I remember the night. I remember the room it was in. So powerful to me. Craig Duttweuer came back to my intervarsity group, sitting in this little room on our campus. And he is, had been graduated, and he's got a job. And this is like the 90s when like, the economy's looking bad. We were all like, what's going to happen after graduation? He's got his diploma. This is what I'm working for right? This is what I'm, I'm a a junior in college, and I'm working for this thing. And he comes to our campus, and he teaches on this passage, and he takes it, and he slams it into a trash can. I just, uh, you know, I, I was so startled by that. He says, whatever I had, whatever glory I had, whatever the things of this world I had, I consider them trash compared to knowing Jesus. See, this is, this is where Paul is. Paul's saying, this is the way of his followers in the world. We say, you know, anything compared to him, we empty ourselves. Everything is trash compared to knowing him. This is why he applies this. He says, therefore, do nothing out of self ambition, selfish ambition, or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. This means laying aside privileges for the sake of others. Now, I know that word privileges. I mean, I just like turned on the electric, the electricity in the room, right? Like that word really ruffles our feathers in many cases. But the Bible holds that up as a normal thing. Like that every person has power and position and privileges that are given you by the Lord Jesus Christ. You have talents that are given you. You have opportunities that are given you that you did not make of yourself. And and the, the Bible's take on that, God's take on that, is always that we are given those things to steward for the benefit of others. Those are never solely for me and my own use. Those are always whatever privileges that you have, whatever power you have, whatever position you have, whatever job you have, whatever role, birth order in your family you have. Those things are yours for the sake of stewarding them on behalf of other people, stewarding them for others. It's not for yours alone. So we're we're talking about this in the context of race, and I I will kind of step out on this. For those who are white, part of the dominant culture in America— Remember, it is not a bad thing. It is not inherently evil that you have privileges or to admit that it even exists. What's important is that we use our privileges, our power, our position for the sake of others. There's this sense of self-emptying. I, I'm not here for me. I'm here for you. And, you know, when I know when I launch into this subject, many of you are internally sighing. You're like, I am... I'm, you don't want me to go here. And and I I get it. Why? Because we're all tired. Anybody else tired this morning? Right? COVID, we all have this COVID fatigue, and we're all just feel kind of run down all the time. And and, and more particularly, we're tired, many people, of having a conversation about race in our culture. We're tired of this. Uh, I know many of you are probably tired of this sermon already. (laughs) Tired of this preaching series already. But here's the reality. It's actually an evidence of the privilege of white people that we can say, I'm tired and I don't want to engage and I can pull back from this whole conversation without it affecting my life. That's actually an evidence of your privilege. You know, the reality is people of color have no choice about being tired in the race conversation in America because they can't pull back from that without it affecting their lives. So here's what I'm asking you to do, is to hang in. Hang in even though you're tired. Hang in, don't, uh, even if you're tired, don't shut down or walk away or or, um, tune out because if Jesus can do this for us, if Jesus can so lower himself for us, look, can we do the same for the sake of others? Jesus is inviting us on this journey of kenosis, of self-emptying for the sake of others. Second, following Jesus, not just in his humility, but in his second incarnational love. Here's what we see in this passage, verse 8. Again, Paul points us to Jesus. He says here, Jesus taking on a body. Jesus becoming, and here's the language we use all the time in church, the 50-cent the word, incarnation. Which just comes from the Latin words "in carne." So, if you've ever been and ordered something chili con carne, right? Chili con carne means chili with what? Class? Meat. meat, right? Chili con carne. Jesus comes in carne, in meat, in flesh. And see, we read in the scriptures. This is fascinating. We read in scriptures: Jesus is the Son of God. He's also the Son of David. The Son of David. He's from a particular ethnic heritage. He's from a particular family line. He's from a particular cultural background. Jesus comes, and he comes as a Jew. He comes with a particular dialect. And what's, what's fascinating about this to me is that that's not just ancient history. Like, we're not just like, okay, that's what Jesus was like, and now he's turned into a laser in heaven, right? What, what, what do we believe about Jesus in heaven now, We believe that Jesus ascended into heaven in a body. There's one person in heaven who has a body right now. Only one. Jesus has a body. He has a Jewish body. He's he's got a Jewish body in heaven. He he is of that lineage and background. This is fascinating to me. What's the purpose of his incarnation? You know this, you know, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Maybe the greatest understatement I could ever make about the cross Jesus disadvantaged himself in order to advantage other people. I mean, right, we could say the cross was kind of a disadvantage for Jesus (laughs) greatest understatement ever. But he did so to advantage others. And again, Paul takes this and says, this is the model for us incarnate, that kind of love, incarnational love. Again, you can see this in the ministry of Paul. He's no hypocritical preacher. In 1 Corinthians 9, he describes the secret of why he was able to go all these different places and share the gospel with all these different kinds of people. He says things like this. For though I'm free, I've made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became... As one under the law, though I'm not under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people. All things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel. See, Paul's saying, "I, yes, I am a Pharisee. I'm of this Jewish background. I got... Cub Scout merits like nobody else on my uniform, and yet I can change shirts for the sake of the gospel. I can look like I'm on other teams for the sake of the gospel. And, And this is why Paul was willing to be, was so effective as a gospel preacher. He held his cultural preferences with open hands. He's able to go to all kinds of different places and relate to all kinds of different people for the sake of the gospel. And see, this is what Paul is pointing us to. The only preferences that should exist within the body of Christ is preferring one another in love. Preferring one another. See, this is, this is the model for us. Kenosis and incarnational love. Incarnational love, it means being curious what it's like to be someone else so you can enter into their world. Curious about what it's like. Can I put some flesh again on the bone for that with regard to this race conversation? What that means for the race conversation is that the onus really is on white people in our culture. Again, I'm going to step on some toes, but the onus really is for white people in our culture to find out what it's been like, what it is like every day to live as a person of color in this culture. You know, the the reality is don't expect people of color to do that work for us, for me, for you. They've had to be That token person of color for years. Nobody has ever asked me to speak on behalf of white people. Hey, give me the white person's perspective. Nobody ever asked me that. That happens to people of color all the time. In their conversations at work, in school, in relationships, that's a normal thing. That's a normal thing. So if we talk about who is really tired in this conversation, it's the Latino population it's the Asian population, it's Native Americans. So incarnational love means that the burden is on white people to educate ourselves, to be curious, to put incarnate into the game. Why would we do this? We do this, Paul says, for two reasons, for the sake of others and for the glory of God. So let's look at this, for the sake of others, verses 1 through 4. The reason we get this whole song, you know, people, a lot of scholars believe that verses 5 through 11 was the first hymn of the early church, that they sang this one all the time. It was one of their favorites, right? They sang this one loud and, and proud, but like, what we get before that, the preamble is verses 1 through 4, where Paul is saying, I got to point out why we need to sing this song in this way. Because there's a problem with the church in Philippi. Now, we don't know the details, but we do know the shape of it. Paul's very clear on this. There's a lack of unity. There's a lack of love. There's a lack of empathy in the church. Notice that he reminds the church what they actually have going for them. Look at verse 1. You have these things, church. You are united to Christ. You have comfort from His love. You have common sharing in the Spirit. You have tenderness and compassion from God. And you are wealthy, in God's economy he's given you all these things and yet those vertical things those vertical gifts are not translating into horizontal realities in your relationships you know you have a relationship with God where you have these things but it's not translating into your relationships with others Um, there's a deficit of empathy among you there's a, a lack of humility selfish ambition vain conceit that's what your church was like that's what it looks like you know this past spring this, this past spring, we entered into a national conversation about race. Uh, sparked, really, by the very public deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And then more and more after that. And, and this, this took over, I, I know this did, this took over your social media feed. It took over your news channel. And I'm betting it took over a family reunion or two this summer or Thanksgiving, or Christmas. How many had some uncomfortable family conversations? Anybody? Right? right. This, this was something that churned up a lot. But as we watched those events and we heard from the church, what was so discouraging me was the response of the church. Now, I'm not just talking about CTK. I'm talking about Big C Church, the church in America. And what we found in that is a church that's deeply divided that's unable to know how to have a unified conversation about these things together in light of Scripture. And, and what I saw in this is a church deeply divided on race that's filled with fear and anger. You know, data from the Barna Research Group, Barna, George Barna started a research group that does um, survey work on the American church. And this is what he found. He said, you know, as of July 2020, Professing Christians, practicing Christians, Christians who say their faith is really important and I'm going to church somewhere at least once a month, they're no more likely to acknowledge, we are no more likely to acknowledge racial injustice than we were the previous summer, 2019. This is what he found. It's actually an increase in the percentage of practicing Christians who say race is not at all a factor in the United States, not at all a problem. An increase from 11% of Christians who say that in 2019 to 19% of Christians who say that in 2020. After all that, they also found you know, he has this question, Barnett Group did. How motivated are you to address the racial injustice in our society? They saw that number also increase by 11%, that Christians are less motivated than ever to address the racial problems in our society. Ouch. I mean, that is us, fam. That's us. That's the family of God. You know, I think if Paul were addressing the church in America, he wrote a letter, like the letter of Paul to the Americans. If he was writing that letter today, I think he would say, wow, you guys are great on the vertical realities, but it's not translating to the horizontal. Right? There's, I see selfish ambition and vain conceit. I see concerns about power. I don't see humility and humility considering and preferring others to yourself. I think he would look at this data and go, Yikes. So can I ask this question? How would humility and incarnational love have changed the response of the church this summer? If what was on the the dashboard when we're driving as a church, what if humility and incarnational love were the main things we were concerned about? I think it would have changed some things these ways. Being generous and humble we would have looked at the Black Lives Matter movement differently. Remember the Black Lives Matter protest this past summer and all the demonstrations? We heard a response from the church that went like this. Hey, all lives matter in response to Black Lives Matter as if like what the Black Lives Matter movement was saying that Black Lives Matter to the exclusion of other lives. I wonder how humility and incarnational love would have changed that. See, I think being generous and humble, we would say, yes, you know what? Black people in this country are situated in a particular historical and cultural context. They got a storyline. And loving people is part of knowing their story and listening and understanding is key. And we would have been able to say, wait, I think that what they're saying is until black lives matter, it's hard for us to really be able to say all lives matter, that that really does matter. Second, you know, we heard a negative response to the slogan, Black Lives Matter, that went like this. Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization with anti-Christian agenda. And again, I think that's a major miss on behalf of the church. I wonder how, again, humility and incarnational love might have changed that response. Because I think we're better than this, people. I think we are nuanced, and we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I think the church can. We do nuance all the time you were part of an election cycle this fall where you're like, I am voting for a candidate from a political party that does not share Christian ideals. That is not about the Bible or Jesus. You know, there's stuff that whichever party you like, both of them have things which were like, no, don't think so. You know, we have to do nuance all the time. And so the church of Jesus Christ should have been able to say, there's a difference between an organization and a theological statement. An organization that we say, you know, we disagree with. Some of the things that they're about. Some of their goals and presuppositions. But can we say that slogan's true? Yeah, we can say that slogan's true. We can say Jesus believes that black lives do matter to him. They are image bearers made in the image of God. Or think about the response to the demonstrations and uproar of, over white on black crime, especially after George Ford's death and the demonstrations. What came out of the church, what I heard over and over is, well, what about black on black crime? What about black on black crime? And again, how would empathy and humility might have shaped that response? Let me think about it this way. If, I were to sh- if someone were to share with you this week You know, my mother just died of cancer. And you responded, Hey, did she smoke? Is that an empathetic response? That's a blaming response. That's looking for a reason to criticize or to find some fault. See, the inclination to bring out, what about black-on-black crime after seeing a black man die on TV with a knee on his neck is not one of humility or empathy or incarnational love. It's a desire to not have to think about that situation. It's, it's See, the death of any image bearer, the death, death of any image bearer is always a tragedy. You know, it's always worthy of our empathy, of our incarnational love. I think we're better than this. Or what about black fatherlessness? I heard about that this summer, too. This came out of the church. What, you know, all the problems in the black community go back to a failure of the black family. Again, how might empathy and humility have changed that conversation? Well, remember, there's a story here. There's a several, 400-year-long story of systemic destruction of the black family, starting with the slave trade. Families over and over and over again i mean it is a miracle in this culture that there are any together black families i i i don't know how that could be translated another way i mean after slavery it's remarkable that there are any again incarnational love humility have to help us to be able to name the full picture And finally, you know, the church shouldn't take a side on any of these cultural issues. We should just preach the gospel. Can you imagine someone going to the pilgrims and saying, hey, religious persecution you're facing? You guys just need to stay where you are and preach the gospel. You know, you don't need to seek out freedoms or justice. You don't need to kind of find a way that you can worship your God. No, no. You know, what if someone told them, just preach the gospel? See, don't humility and incarnational love call us to something much more than just responding to sound bites They call us back to the Word and the Spirit? You know, don't misunderstand me. Some of you are like, Bradford is taking a big swing at the right. I am not. I'm taking a big swing at the church. I'm talking about the family business this morning. You know, our neighbors are looking at our church. They're looking at the church of Jesus Christ and they're looking at our embodied profession of our faith and they're finding us very different from what we say. They're saying, wait, I, I've heard something before about they'll know we are Christians by our love. John thirteen thirty five. by all this, people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. See, biblical love is never just feelings. Biblical love is always rooted and anchored in sacrifice. If there's no sacrifice for others, then it's not love. It's something else. It's nice intentions. Biblical love is to disadvantage self in order to advantage others. So, like, why do we do this? Why, why do we, should we enter into this? I mean, you may disagree with everything I said this morning. But look, this is the call to follow Jesus. The downward pathway to humility and incarnational love is not optional for his people. This is what it means to follow him. Why else do we need do this work? Yes, for the sake of our neighbors. But you know what else? For the glory of Jesus. I mean, did you hear this part of the hymn? You know, he says here, and this is what they sang. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Don't we agree with that, family? The name above every name. The name of Jesus. Every knee should bow, Right? Uh, right? in heaven and earth and under the earth. You know, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, I want that. Man, we want Jesus to be prized and praised. Let me tell you what we're not aiming at as a church. We're not just aiming, we're not aiming at being a woke church. You know, a, a woke is sort of a new merit badge that you get in the culture for being socially aware enough and the reality is we don't need that added to the cub scout uniform why we already got the righteousness of jesus christ he's given us all the badges we could ever want you know i I, you're like one of those admirals in the navy with all the like stuff you can barely stand up because there's so many badges because you have jesus's righteousness all over you we're not trying to gain some kind of woke church status we don't need that what do we want? See, that's too small. Woke church is about self-glory. We want Jesus' glory. We want Jesus' glory. We want everyone gathered around that throne on that day and saying, Him, He's worthy. He's the one. You know, we're, we're about Him. We're about His glory, and we want all people, every tribe and nation and people and tongue, to prize and praise Him. See, this is why our goal as a church is a lifelong journey of listening and learning that mutually recognizes and validates and celebrates all people and cultures to glorify God and pursue Christian unity. That's cross-cultural discipleship. I got some good news for you. We're not alone on this journey. You know, our denomination in 2018 published this really beautiful statement of what it looks like for the PCA our little corner of the Christian world, to pursue other-centered love and humility with regard to race. I and mean, you can read it. We'll have it linked off some of our social media. It's, it's an amazing statement of steps in repentance. It's gorgeous. You know, your elders in this church, um, a year ago, a little over a year ago, approved all the things we're doing and talking about with regard to cross-cultural discipleship. Now, this isn't a response the Black Lives Matter movement. We didn't wake up someday, we we better start getting out our inner tube and floating with the culture. No, we we said, biblically, this is what we think we're supposed to be about. Long before that. See, our church thinks this is mission central for us, but it is going to cost us. It's going to challenge us. It may change us. But I think it's worth it. You know, we're, there's a wire going across the river. There's a wire there's some rope, and I think we can follow Jesus across this ferry boat to somewhere better. I really do. But here's my question. Where are you? Where are you in this? What's the Lord saying to you today? Because this isn't just an us. This is a you question. Where are you? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. There's nothing like your word. And, Lord, we confess, Lord, how much that we fall short. Lord, this picture of humility and other-centered love, I can't, I, I stammer to even be able to describe it. But, Lord, we pray that you would work it deep within us, individually and as a church body. We pray, Father, that you would get glory, that you would become famous, and that, Lord, that those in our lives, in our city, in our world would experience Jesus because of what happens when your people follow your footsteps. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.